Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hans Kaspersetz is the founder and president of Arteric, a digital agency for biotech and pharma built on a foundation of state-of-the-art software engineering. Hans is a lifelong software developer intent on driving change in the life sciences and healthcare. Hans, welcome back for your second appearance on LSMR. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a fun one. So today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, which I know a lot of people are very curious about, anxious to think about how they can use it, and at the very least understand it, if, even if they aren't ready to use it, and latent semantic analysis, which you're going to have to explain. <laughs> so... Um, Let's start like this. The last time we spoke, we talked about the challenge of analyzing large sets of pay-per-click data so companies can identify the content marketing opportunities that would um, help them deliver a better experience on the customer journey. So let's start by refreshing that and then get into any updates you might have around that. Thanks, Chris. So. One of the core challenges we have as marketers is what to do with the reams of data uh, that are pay-per-click, search console, and other um, channels produce, right? And so the, what I'm talking about is the actual verbatim searches that our users are typing into Google are being recorded and then fed back to us through those campaigns. We did analysis uh, for one of our clients, you know, last year, and we continue to do this, where we looked at, say, you know, 50,000, 100,000, 200, 300, you know, a million uh, searches. And so we have a, a million exact entries of what people typed in. And then we're looking through that to find what we should be producing content on. What are pe- how do people actually talk about our product? How do they actually search for it? And when we were doing that work, um, you know, out of say 50,000, we might find 1,400 questions and then we'll dig through those 1,400, we'll find 250 that the brand can actually answer, right, from a legal regulatory perspective. And then when you go and actually look at to see what's being served in the Google search results, they may only show up for say 100 or so of those, but only directly answer four. And this is a big gap, right? The users are having all of these micro experiences, micro moments with the brand. And when somebody searches for something and you don't serve up exactly the right content, that leads to a dissatisfied customer and uh, less likely that they're going to have a positive interaction with the brand. When we were doing this work, it was taking us you know, a week or two of a, a single analyst to do this work. Uh, This year, we sat down and started thinking about how can we bring artificial intelligence and machine learning to solve this problem. And what we discovered is there's some really good ways to do it. Artificial intelligence is huge right now, right, Chris? Everybody's talking about it. People are trying to figure out how they're going to use it. And there's this misconception that there are general solutions in the marketplace. And as marketers, what we know is that or what we're learning, right? And those of us in the software, like at Arteric, we're software developers, so we're interacting with this stuff all the time, is that if you can define your problem really in a narrow way, artificial intelligence can bring a lot to sol- to solving it, right? And there are 
uh, sort of utility grade artificial intelligence and machine learning services in the market that we can wrap or we are wrapping with interfaces to solve specific marketing challenges. And so this summer, we sat down and built a proof of concept uh, project on Cortico.io's Retina API, which is a latent semantic analysis engine and fingerprinting tool. And so we load all, you know, the, we load all of our pay-per-click data into it. We create fingerprints for it, and then we can actually get relevancy for that data to a topic. So you put in a word, a sentence, and you say, okay, find me all the queries that are related to this thing. It's been really remarkable because it took what, you know, it's taking 40 or 80 hours worth of labor, and now we're doing that work in 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And so for for healthcare marketers, biotech marketers, life sciences marketers, this is really transformative. Yeah, so let's let's back up and just go into a little more detail about that semantic processing and the fingerprint. I have a rough idea what you're talking about, but let's let's put a clear picture in everyone's head about what's going on in there. Right. So what they've done is the the Cortico IO guys team has built an engine that was trained using uh, Wikipedia. And there's other training sets for it as well, but the Wikipedia one is available in the free interface. What they do is they take the content that you upload and then create a fingerprint for it. And that fingerprint actually places that content in uh, vector space, basically 3D space, and then gives distances from your content to other topics within that space. And when you do um, cosine similarity, which basically takes the distance from one thing to another thing, you can actually get the relevancy of a particular sentence or topic to another topic. The magic that we bring to it and the thing we're doing today is that we wrapped this uh, software as a service API in an interface that's specifically designed to upload pay-per-click data, upload search console data, and then upload a topic and then find all of the queries that you've uploaded that are relevant with a relevancy score to the topic you're searching for. Now that creates all sorts of opportunities for us as marketers, right? Let's say we want to find every single variant of how much does this product cost? Uh, you know, what's the usage of this product? Uh, what's the dosage of this product? Where can I buy this product? Those questions get asked. I mean, and when we take a look at it, there may be 10 or 15 variants of how to ask each of those questions and identifying those, ensuring that you're answering each of those variants with a similar question in your content strategy becomes really important. Uh, it gives you a way to blow out sort of and make larger uh, the, oper the keyword set that you should be using as you build content and as you build solutions online. Nice. Yeah. So can I imagine this fingerprint in this 3D space is kind of like a three-dimensional mind map sort of, of, you know, a question and every question like it, and it just goes out and out and out. And Yeah, you can do that. The other probably good metaphor is all of the questions live in space somewhere, and each one has an address. 
and that address is made up of all of the vectors to that particular topic from all of the other topics in that neighborhood. And so we're building a map from one topic to another topic. Right. And that's just, you know, geeking out on it a little bit. But the really important thing here is, um, first of all, took two weeks previously to do some analysis that would let you figure out based on thousands of queries what the essential questions were and what content you should produce. And now we're down to figuring that out in 10 minutes. So that's um, a pretty amazing acceleration of the kind of work you're doing. What, what types of insights about those questions and what people can do with this sort of data have you gotten from that? Yeah. So the, it's not only the speed, Chris, that's amazing. It's the fact that you can scale the data sets almost infinitely and they get smarter with the more data that you feed in. So humans don't really get that much smarter as you scale, say, from a couple of thousand queries to tens or hundreds of thousands of queries. But the, uh, the, in, the API gets way smarter and with the more queries that you have. And then over time, even is that as you add more data to it, you build the map gets richer and richer and richer. And so the, the processing speed actually gets faster and faster. From an insight perspective as a marketer and as a communicator, there's sort of the obvious stuff like I just described. Well, how much does this cost? What does this cost? What will I pay for this? What's the price of this? Right? Those are sort of variants on a question. When you take the inverse of that, right? Uh, can you use this product for a cold? Right? Or, and you take the inverse, you take the least relevant things, you discover an entire sort of ecosystem of content that A, your ads are being served for that you may have not anticipated. Uh, one of the things that we discovered for one of our products was that there was an extraordinary amount of search volume in Spanish for the product that we had not anticipated. And we had found it by taking the inverse of the English topics and it revealed all of this you know, really low relevant stuff because it was in another language that helped us to go back to our clients and talk about a strategy for marketing the product into an entire, you know, in, in a culturally relevant way and in a language relevant way for an audience that we didn't even know we had. That's one, you know, particular use case for this. And if we were doing this in English, and there was a manual analyst sitting there looking at, say, Excel, it wouldn't have immediately been apparent and it would have taken a long time to get to. They would have actually had to ask the question, like, what's the opposite of this? And I don't think, you know, our experience is that humans aren't very good at that. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of opposites for any, for many terms, right? Um, so, it sounds like what happened there is, first of all, you're able to make things more relevant in in Spanish. But I think I also heard you say there was an opportunity to eliminate, you know, as you say, lots of irrelevant queries that you're paying to serve an ad for that you really don't want to serve for at all. That's exactly right. Building negative keyword lists or 
uh, sort of topical exclusion lists uh, becomes really important, right? Because we pay per click or we pay per CPN on you know a lot of different platforms, and it's not always evident what we shouldn't be serving ads for. So accelerating that process and then being able to do it dynamically becomes very interesting. I think there's a, 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 a we're doing we're doing some research and investigating uh, a, a sort of broader sort of more interesting thing as well is that when you tie in this kind of data into a chatbot, which is what we're, we're working on now, which is what makes it really exciting, you're we're building interfaces for navigating data sets such as survey data or building net, you know, tools for navigating really large websites. So one of our uh, consulting clients is a very, very large, well-recognized well advocacy brand. They have around 6,000 pages of user-generated content and their own content. They had considered hiring a whole bunch of manual chat operators to help people navigate the website. That's how big the website got. What sort of came out of working with them is this idea, which we're investigating. I mean, so we're not talking about things we've done. We're talking about sort of the avant-garde of what we can do and what we're, we're researching, right? Is building, feeding all this content in, building a chat interface to it. So when somebody asks it a question like, oh, what's the treatment for this? If there's not a direct answer for it, it says, oh, did you mean whatever the question? The person says yes or no. The chatbot then is able to sort of train itself. That acts as a supervised learning environment for the for the algorithm. And then it feeds it the content. And instead of hiring lots of chat operators to actually respond to people, the chat operators supervise the, the chatbot and the artificial intelligence. And it's it allows us to build much bigger and much more interesting interfaces. And as, you know, a week or two ago, Google came out, or uh, no, I'm sorry, Manhattan Research came out and said 23% of physicians are using uh, Siri and Alexa to diagnose and choose treatment options for their patients. And so one of the reasons we have to do this and why we have to find all these variants on the questions is that the in order to teach a skill to say Alexa, you have to give all the variants or all the close variants for Alexa to have the right answer. In order for Siri to use Bing to find the right answer, you have to present all the variants on the question so that Bing can accurately categorize your content, create taxonomy for it, and then respond. And one of the things we should all be thinking about is that with search, right, when somebody searches for content online today, whether it's on their phone or whether it's in their browser, you get 10 to 15 responses. You get the paid ads and then you get all the organic stuff. When somebody searches for our content today using, say, Siri, they really only get one answer back. And so the, the stakes for all of us as marketers are going up as we move from the browser and from the mobile phone over to voice interfaces and in that we need to be the number one most relevant answer for the question that's being asked in the way it's being asked by the consumer or user or customer. Yeah. And if you're a physician, you better get the one right answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a bunch of bad press for Watson over the last two weeks on this issue, right? Um, IBM came out 
marketed Watson really heavily, especially into oncology, and sold it into a bunch of hospitals. Uh, you know, a couple hospitals in the U.S., a bunch of hospitals overseas, and there, I th- if you know, you'd have to correct me, but I don't think the press was very positive about whether or not Watson was really helping uh, the physicians to make better diagnoses in in cancer and oncology. And there's like an army of physicians and data analysts backing up Watson, trying to feed in relevant cases uh, in order to arm it so that it makes better sort of treatment recommendations. So we're going to watch this full unfold, right? And the the thing, you know, the opinion piece for me is what we're seeing is somebody, you know, a brand selling a generalized solution that probably wasn't fully ready for prime time that needs to evolve, needs a lot more data, needs a lot more you know, input from physicians and patients and outcomes. And so it's like, oh, okay, we, we need to back off of that a little bit or, you know, we have to understand that it's evolving. But in the case of marketers and businesses, when we have a really narrow challenge, like find me all the questions like this in my data set, we can, we are able to tap into Google, uh, Google's AI APIs, Microsoft's APIs, Cortico AI's API to solve these problems uh, with, you know, what is essentially utility-grade IA um, just by building the interfaces and and figuring out use cases that are meaningful to us. Yeah, so that's this is all really fascinating and probably inspiring for the people listening to this, um, definitely the people into marketing technology. So how, how did you and Artera get into building tools like this scratching our own itch (laughs) so we're really fortunate um we started the company in 1999 and by 2003 there was a a dearth of digital agencies in healthcare marketing and so we made the transition into healthcare marketing and over time we built banking systems and airline reservation systems and really kind of complex transactional uh, web applications and mobile apps. And a couple of years ago, we made this decision that we were going to focus on building software for marketers. Right? We're going to solve marketing challenges using software and web applications. And the f- place we actually started was we built an application that screenshots uh, and does an automated comparison of every single page of a website a current version of the website to a historic version of that website so we could identify changes over time. And this was done for medical, legal, regulatory purposes, right? How do we ensure that Mm. as we update a website or do something, nothing else changes so that it doesn't have to be reviewed and how can we automate that? That work turned into, okay, what other problems are we having or what other challenges do we face every day that are taking enormous amounts of time and are highly repetitive? And this particular case where we're analyzing pay-per-click data and search console data and website content really was clearly solvable using existing technology in the marketplace. If you have the software chops, like you need a team that can actually sit down and write a tool to do this and can build the data structures to handle it. And there are teams that can do that, but they need to have this. They need to understand the healthcare marketing challenges, the life sciences, health, you know, communications challenges. What data do you have and how do you train these things and supervise them to get really 
remarkable results. Nice. So that's a, it's a nice intersection of of unusual talents that you have in this, in the agency and marketing world. Um, Do you know, so this has come up in another interview that's going to come up um, in the episode after yours. Um, Shane Snow, does that name mean anything to you? Wrote a book called Smart Cuts. Um, so I'm kind of locked onto this thing. Um, just, um, just interesting. His, his whole book is about lateral thinking. He's actually also the founder of contently. So everybody interested in this podcast will also be interested in, um, uh, contently, which is a content marketing platform. But, um, so he wrote a book on, and he just has lots of examples and I, I am not very deep into the book, but I heard him on, uh, James Altucher's podcast, just talking about how, you know, breakthroughs come from combining two different things typically. And when two people, two groups pull their perspectives together, then that that's where things come from, not from incremental improvements. So I'll throw that out there just for the interest of folks listening. Let's talk about, just for fun, how artificial intelligence and machine learning is working at scale and how it's impacting us right now. Yeah, this is a, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, I, I, it was a revelation to me. It is a revelation to me that spreading a workload across millions or billions of people makes things that seem impossible possible right and several years ago the folks i think it was at carnegie mellon they built the captcha engine and the recaptcha engine i think we've all seen this right you go to a website it shows you a little bit of text you have to type in the text uh, and then it lets you through what i don't think people knew at the time was that they were actually using that engine in order to distribute the workload of uh, correcting sort of mal scanned things that didn't get scanned properly uh, from books. So, you know, people would book, sign in, a, you know, you would scan in an ancient text or a book, the OCR software, optical character recognition software wouldn't understand what it is. Carnegie Mellon would take that little slice of that image and then parse it out, you know, send it out to, you know, 100,000 people they would type in the text. They would know some of the words were real, some of the letters weren't, so they could actually get a validation. And then they would feed that information back into the machine so that it would become better at scanning the text. And eventually, Google bought the reCAPTCHA technology, I'm pretty sure. Um, I shouldn't say things on a podcast that I'm not absolutely sure about, right, Chris? <laughs> Uh, but I let's you know somebody can blast I'll me for this the later. Disclaimer, yeah. yeah, yeah. So just imagine <laughs> what I'm telling you is no. Okay, so they, so they buy this technology for reCAPTCHA, and so there's reCAPTCHA on millions of websites, and now Google today, right, is training its image recognition software and its ability to tell a story about a picture by sending out you know, six or seven pictures as your CAPTCHA, right? As your proof of you're a human. And they say, you know, show me all the store, you know, click all the storefronts in this image. And there might be like three storefronts and then two things that aren't storefronts, but really look like storefronts. I saw another example of it today where it was like, click all the things that are statues. And there were like three statues 
and then what looked like a mountain peak, like a really jagged, thin mountain peak, and something else. I don't remember what it was. And so when we go through and we do that, so we're actually supervising or validating the results from the image recognition artificial intelligence that Google is using to validate what something is. Now, if I only have like five people in my office, that doesn't work that well, right? We can't do things at scale, but when you can distribute that kind of learning or supervised training of an algorithm across basically everybody worldwide, uh, you can accelerate uh, the training of the algorithms really quickly. And this is happening sort of all over the place, right? We do this through liking content, not liking content in, in Facebook. We do it by you know clicking on things in the search results. Uh, we do it by typing content into Wikipedia, re, you know, referencing that content to you know with a bibliographic reference to something else to a sort of primary source, and then you know the crawlers uh, index and interpret all of that right and use that as as training content. And I it was it is was really eye-opening to me and continues to be eye-opening to me to see where we're being sort of turned into labor, right, as an exchange with these big companies um, to do it. Another interesting place that we see it happening is the uh, people also bought and people also viewed data on um, retail sites. We're actually, you know, as we work our way through retail sites, they're collecting data about you know, what products get purchased together, what products get viewed together, and that exceeds the taxonomy they set for their products. And that gives a lot of insight to um, to marketers yeah. and, and product managers about how things are, are used and thought of in, 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 in people space. Yeah. So <laughs> that one is fascinating. So obviously Amazon always pops up things, but yeah, there's huge amount of data there about what people use in a group of things. Um, and then the wiki example. So it would seem that with those bibliographical references and the latent semantic analysis that Wikipedia could start to learn. It could detect BS on a Wikipedia post on its own without any human review at some point, like this say like, Hey, that reference doesn't or, or what you've put down here just doesn't mesh with everything else we know. Is that possible? I think it's I think it's possible. I don't know. It, I mean, Wikipedia is collecting what twenty five million or thirty million dollars a year in in public money, right? Donations. So I am mm-hmm. not exactly sure what they're working on. I mean, I haven't seen it in the Wikimedia software that we because we implement wikis, right? So we we don't see that. Right. But at the Google that Bing, well, at the Google and Bing level, it's happening. Right, the authority of content, uh, Google, you know, measures authority based on uh, conceptually how relevant something is to something else. And so, yes. when we build, you know, sort of disease education or uh, you know product sites, and we do sort of primary referencing, and we're using credible sources. Um, we know that we're influencing the authority of our site based on uh, co-citation and, and co-appearance of both references and concepts. 
So I know that, you know, we have really good evidence that that works. Uh, and it really goes beyond just people inbound linking to you. I mean, that's a, that is definitely a positive signal uh, and still is a positive signal, but that's a positive signal that can be gamed pretty easily by black hat SEOs and gray hats. Right. What's much harder to game, and the reason that high quality, rich, really semantically rich, well-referenced authoritative content performs so well, both with users and in search, is because uh, the semantic analysis and graph that, you know, sort of conceptual graphs or um, lexical graphs that Google creates and Bing creates is very authoritative. It's the reason Google scanned in like every book in existence, right? That fed their ability to understand concepts and topics at a much greater level than just the websites that have been published. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the reason why open journals are so powerful. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, it's, um, and I think that's a, you know, that's a good thing. Um, and it's pretty amazing. Um, so I've just, I'm a little, I'm slightly distracted as you can tell, because I'm, I'm still fascinated by this captcha thing. I have to ask. So people that know me well, and probably no one on the podcast knows me this well, but I'm a, I'm a rule follower, but I have a little bit of a rebellious streak. So I have to ask, like, does captcha even care if I get the right answer? It's just asking for me to do something to prove I'm a human, right? Yeah. Well, would I be denied access if I picked the non-storefronts just for fun? I don't know. I haven't run that experiment, (laughs) but I think you've probably experienced the, uh, am I a robot? Uh, checkboxes. Yeah. And, you know, Google's libraries are tracking your mouse behavior, right? And it has a pretty good idea of what a humanistic mouse movement looks like versus Uh. an algorithmic uh, input Uh. looks like. So there's a number of factors that uh, can be gamed. I mean, very interesting in the older reCAPTCHA stuff, um, adult sites and well and and more more importantly uh hackers would screen capture the captcha from one site and then feed it through and display it on, on another site get the answer and then pass that answer back onto the first site so that they could gain access and that they could distribute the cracking of captcha uh-huh. uh to people. So in other words, they would access your website, they would grab the captcha, they would then send it back out to a group of other people, they would get an answer for, you know, from a site that they had right. already sort of had people logging into. And then it would go back and really quickly be answered, right? That was the really old way of doing it. All automated and, to throw right. their spam on there, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, exactly, yeah. And so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we we care. Um, I think that I believe in sort of the things I've read indicate that when they do the visual, the image, uh, the image optic, the image recognition training using CAPTCHA, they're doing it at such scale that there's really good statistical tools to tell whether or not this thing is what it thinks it is. I mean, yeah, you're seeing sure it put across lots and lots and lots of, of clicks. Um, and I'm, I mean, we, I'm not sure. 
I would be inter- I don't get those captchas often. I don't log into a lot of things that I would get one. But it would be a pretty interesting test to um, to just click the wrong things for a while and see how often you actually get rejected uh, from from the site. Yeah, well, I mean, all I'm thinking about really, and I'm not recommending any hacking just for the record, but just to like speed up the process. Like, do I really have to pick out all the storefronts or can I just click that one square and move on? <laughs> so, yeah. And let everybody else do Google's work for them. But... I think it's a convenience thing. It's part of the exchange of value. It's the it's um, we get to use free services, right? If we do this work, there is actually some a little bit of due consideration there from from labor. Um, and what's really what's interesting to me is that it they do it at such low volumes on an individual basis, but it's such huge volume at such scale. Uh, across the world that they can achieve quite a lot without putting a lot of load on any individual. And we're going to see more and more of that. Right. And I think that's, you know, to get way off topic when you start to think about things like universal basic income and other sort of like, how do we extract value from machines? um, And how do we extract value from the automation of work that was traditionally labor, the responsibility of labor? we get into a whole like really sort of political sort of philosophical conversation for us as marketers, as long as we're doing something that's not easily repeated, we're safe. And so there's all sorts of work that we have to do from, you know, analytics and content generate idea generation and sort of, you know, mind mapping and sort of all sorts of stuff like that, that would benefit or does benefit currently from these technologies and then there's all the magic that we add the insights that it's going to be a long time before we get real insights out of any machine yeah well i want to thank you for two things one that great education on the whole um semantic processing and the opportunities there for marketers to solve specific problems improve their content save money on their pay-per-click and thank you for bringing the conversation back after i took us on that little detour about the cap set so um this was really fun hans casper sets i really enjoyed this uh it's fascinating talking about this stuff i am sure i'm going to hear from you again in about six months and we're gonna have another one of these conversations because it's just really fun i think people really appreciate it i would love it i mean at Arteric, we're always working on this stuff. I mean, we're really focused on where we need to be 18 months to 24 months out. Uh, and so for you and for our re- our listeners, there's always going to be some sort of a new nugget and new insight, new use of this technology, and it's evolving really rapidly. So just stay focused, try to pick a problem to solve with it and find a partner that's comfortable um, building an interface to solve your specific problem. We're going to see a lot come out of this, you know, in the conferences this year and next year as well. So, Very cool. So I'll put a link to Arteric on the website in the show notes. And once again, Hans Kasper says, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great. Talk to you soon. All right. There's another fantastic conversation on 
big data and how marketers can take advantage of it. In the next couple of weeks, I have some great guests coming on. I'm going to talk to the VP of Marketing at Waters Corporation, and he's going to talk about managing the shift from a technology-centric culture to a customer-centric culture. I'll talk to a salesperson and what sales needs to know about how customers buy. And uh, the same person is going to talk a little bit about why market share is so important for companies and how to get it if you don't already have it, how to double your leads with buyer personas, something I think all of you will be interested in, and a little bit about the internet of things and the kind of information you can use to personalize your marketing with your existing customers. So don't miss out on those. As always, if you like the podcast, I've been getting great feedback. I appreciate everybody who's emailed me or messaged me through LinkedIn to tell me how much they enjoy the podcast. I get the idea that you have some friends who don't know about it yet. They will appreciate it if you tell them. So tell two of those people and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Bye-bye.